Welcome back to The Andrew Curtis Show. A few weeks ago, I started a new series here. It was because I wanted to take a look at issues I thought were not covered by our current media outlets with the depth and the nuance that I thought was required. The first episode was devoted to Serena Williams at the US Open final, and you can find the links to that via the Facebook page, on iTunes, and so on. This second episode was developed from suggestions I received the same time as the Serena Williams episode, but this time I've taken it with a bit of a twist. Besides Serena, the issue that received the most attention was suicide and mental health awareness. This is particularly significant in a nation like New Zealand, where we have one of the highest youth suicide rates in the world. There's also frequent news uh, reports about celebrities and their mental health struggles now. Most recently, this has involved people like Anthony Bourdain, Mac Miller, and closer to home, Greg Boyd. Being aware of the significance, I was also conflicted. I was very aware of how prescriptive I could or couldn't be when discussing a topic like this. The Serena Williams incident mostly required historical fact-checking and corroboration. Suicide and mental health, however, is much more nuanced. The last thing I wanted to do was add more noise when proper expertise was called for. What level of authority can I speak from as an unqualified psychologist? But lo, such is the wonder of the mind and our capacity for creativity that I saw something in the conversation that presented a broader but potentially more helpful angle for investigation. You see, I could just talk about mental health awareness, but there's always another thing. Humanity has a habit of bouncing from one crisis to another. And besides that, I like loftier targets. I wondered if there was an approach that I could take that would work for this crisis and the ones to come. Is that lofty enough? With that in mind, I present to you The Andrew Curtis Show, taking on awareness. To begin with, I think it's important for you to understand my perspective on how we're approaching mental health. I believe suicide and mental health awareness campaigns have emerged as a part solution to what has been described as the mental health crisis. The idea being that if we're more aware of the mental health struggles of others, we are better equipped to help. We need to understand the specific challenges facing mental illness, develop strategies, then develop, uh, then disseminate them rather amongst the population to create a better mental health safety net. How's that for insightful? You're blown away, right? Here's where I start to question this approach though. Taken in isolation, a suicide awareness campaign seems like a logical response to these challenges. But this campaign is not in isolation. A cursory search has shown a calendar replete with causes and events competing for our attention. This includes, but is not limited to, World Wetlands Day, Waitangi Day, International Day of Women and Girls in Science, Chinese New Year, International Mother Language Day, World Wildlife Day, FIO Awareness Month, Children's Day, New Zealand Sea Week, International Women's Day, World Down Syndrome Day, World Poetry Day, World Meteorological Day, and Easter. And in case you're wondering, that's just covering February and March of 2018. All these campaigns seem to operate from the same base strategy. Identify a challenge or a cause, call for awareness, develop strategies, disseminate, problem solved. Now, I'm not making a value judgment on which of these has more merit than the others, but you may be starting to spot what stood out to me. 
There's a huge amount of work in taking every challenge as an individual task to be collectively solved. Just how aware can we possibly be? It occurs to me that the most likely response to a person trying to take on board every conceivable awareness campaign and act accordingly is probably burnout. If we accept that there are limits to how much we can hold in our head at once, imagine trying to make a case for which things we should and shouldn't be aware of. To clarify, I'm not against any of these causes competing for attention in the marketplace of ideas. Ideally, this would allow for individuals to respond on an individual basis, according to what most resonates with them. As a tool for increasing human well-being, though, I wonder if there aren't better options available. I'd be stunned if there isn't something in the news within the next month with a call to arms along the lines of we have to do something about dot 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 that was hitherto unknown to us. Do we really want to reduce the issues of the human condition into who runs the most effective marketing campaign? And what would be the metrics for deciding between causes? Frequency, like something like asthma. Impact, like the Ebola virus. Comparative trends, like with suicide. How then should we respond with so many worthy causes all competing for our attention? I believe that there is hope and it comes in the form of doing less. Now to make my case, I'm going to start by leaning heavily on Nassim Nicholas Taleb's excellent book, Anti-Fragile. There is going to be a full review coming in future. But for now, the central point I want to address is how we respond to chaos and disorder. As a rule, human beings don't like the randomness of life or the sense that there are things that are outside our control. We're forever making plans and attempting to rationalize the world around us. Sometimes we do this well. Most of the time, we don't. There's a well-worn logical fallacy or error of thinking called the post hoc fallacy. It's taken from the Latin post hoc ergo propter hoc. Don't quote me on the pronunciation. It translates literally as after this, therefore, because of this. In other words, something happens and we associate its cause to the event that immediately preceded it. It's the mother of all superstitions. It's why sports players have lucky socks. And it's also not helpful. Taleb explains many implications of our search for certainty in an uncertain world. But one of the main premises is that often in our attempts to remove uncertainty or randomness, we make a system more fragile to the unexpected changes still to come. The global financial crisis of 2008 is a perfect example, coming after years of Ben Bernanke's crusade to end the boom-bust cycle. In his efforts to eliminate the small uncertainties, he made the system vulnerable to unexpected cataclysm. On a social level, we can see this with the phenomenon of what they call helicopter parenting. In an effort to spare children from a moment of preventable suffering like a skinned knee, we leave them completely unprepared when an unpreventable moment comes smashing through the bubble wrap, leading to deeper levels of devastation. That might be a crude analogy, so I hope you'll be gracious with me here and think about the wider point. That exposure to small challenges prepares us for bigger challenges. Protection from small challenges leaves our resilience undeveloped and more prone to psychological trauma from larger challenges later on. In fact, I don't think resilience is even the best word. It suggests being robust, that the challenges of life will just bounce off. 
The truth is, we don't get to a state of being unaffected. We actually become stronger, better than before. Now, lest you think this is about to become a prescriptive response to those with mental health challenges, I'd like to assure you that it's not. This is about to become a prescriptive response for the rest of us. Those of us who have been told that the best way for us to respond to the suffering around us is to become specifically aware. Before I outline that solution, there's one more floor of awareness campaigns that I'd like to expand on. And once again, I have to ask for your graciousness here, because I'm going to try and unpack something that I know can be an incredibly difficult experience. There's a potentially massive downside to the rationale behind awareness campaigns in that it shifts an unfair measure of responsibility onto the shoulders of those being told they should be or need to be more aware. One of the cases I was specifically introduced to was the tragic story of Andrew Stockline, a pastor in Colorado. The heartbreaking letter written by his wife in the aftermath is an outpouring of confusion and pain, with questions of why and how occurring again and again. It's perhaps a natural response that in the event of tragedy, we ask ourselves what we could do. Survivor's guilt is another name for it. My concern is that trying to combat something as complex as mental health with a list of warning signs and techniques has done nothing to lessen the shock that still hits families when somebody takes their own life. One thing I believe I can say with confidence regarding mental health is that lasting long-term change comes from the inside out. In other words, I cannot take ultimate responsibility for the mental health of another person. The most effective thing I can do to improve someone's life is to empower the individual, not controlling their environment. Assuming that I can fix people by my actions disempowers them and it stresses me out. And I can tell you that from personal experience. How then can I help create personally empowering moments without lapsing into environment management? Well, see what you think of this. First, here's a list of high-level problems awareness campaigns can't solve. Number one, life is infinitely complex. This is another way of stating my earlier point, that because of the number of things that can or will go wrong, we can't possibly be aware of all of them. Number two is that life contains suffering. The reason there are so many awareness campaigns is partly a response to another common truth. Life is hard. This has huge implications for our interactions with other people. Those who are affected by suicide in particular often express shock or surprise. They didn't know anything was wrong. We have a tendency to look at others and assume that their life is great because they're not dealing with the same pain we are. Well, this is half true. They may not be dealing with the same pain we are, but they are dealing with something that is unique to them. This understanding leads to a sense of common humanity, which is something that we will explore more shortly. Number three is that we are bad at probability. This is more of a math problem, but it has massive implications for how we approach the complexity and suffering that happens around us. When it comes to well-being, the problem looks like this. In any one given moment of your life, or somebody else's, what is the chance that they are experiencing a serious illness? Probably only a few percent. However, when we look at the long term, 
what are the chances that you will experience some form of serious health battle at some point in your life? Closer to 100%. Number four is that we think we are fragile. Daniel Gilbert has done extensive work in a field called effective forecasting. That is our ability to predict how we will feel if we experience change in future circumstances. His work consistently found that although people tend to predict their devastation from relationship breakups, serious illness, and the, and the like, when they're checked in with later, their response was always better than they anticipated it would be. To sum up, the problem with the awareness approach is that there is simply far too much to be aware of. Treating the unpredictable challenges of life as though they each require special awareness creates overwhelm and is often non-transferable knowledge. And in other words, knowing how to deal with one challenge doesn't necessarily teach you how to solve the next one. My solution is therefore a subtle shift from specific awareness to general awareness of the human condition. Remember at the start I said the solution came from doing less? Well, instead of specific techniques, I would prefer to focus on guiding principles. Before acting, what if we were all to acknowledge the following things? Number one, life is unpredictable. This takes the pressure off both the sufferer and their support network, making it easier to acknowledge the current reality without falling into the trap of a post hoc fallacy, i.e. what did I do to deserve this? The real cause may be unprovable, and even if it's not, there's no shame in being caught by surprise. Number two is that life includes suffering. Much of the difficulty around expressing our mental and physical health challenges is the shame people associate with it. The assumption is that life is supposed to be great, and if you're suffering, you must have screwed up. How different would it be if we assumed that, number three, suffering happens to everyone? This relates to that point about probability. If we know that life is unpredictable, and that the unpredictability includes suffering, then it will include you or someone you know at some point. This is not being negative. This is acknowledging that you will need to both receive and give help at some point in your life. And number four, you are stronger than you think. We have told people that they're fragile. They are not. Just as the physical body grows by taking on greater weights, so does the soul. Just because something hurts now is not a sign that you can't, it's a sign that you can and will get stronger if you persevere. All four elements combine to reinforce the central theme of common humanity. There is not the well and the sick, the happy and the sad, the weak and the strong. We will find ourselves in every one of those states at different points in our lives. Your life is unpredictable. Sometimes it will be painful. I just can't tell you when. When that pain comes, you have the power to overcome it if you acknowledge and walk towards it. My help towards others should therefore be focused on encouraging this line of thinking within the individual, not how I can control their environment for them. As a closing thought, I was discussing the idea for this episode with a friend the other night, and they made the comment about another expression of awareness culture, wokeness. What is being woke? My definition is a level of heightened awareness that says you see what other people don't see. You see the world for the way it really is. 
This would be fine if it didn't come with, in my observation, an implicit claim to superiority by putting down the unwoke. In other words, I'm woke because I see and I choose to see, and you're not woke because you don't have the strength of will to see the world as it really is. Open your eyes. You ever heard that before? Maybe there's something to criticizing our unwillingness to see. After all, confirmation bias is a term given to our desire to find information that confirms what we already think. But I digress. What I will say is that it's very easy to see someone's behavior as motivated by ill will. Their unwokeness proves that they don't care or are resistant to the truth. For this, we need to apply a principle called Hanlon's razor. Never attribute to malice that which could be attributed to thoughtlessness. Our inattention to the struggles of others is not because we hate one another, more that it's easy to be thoughtless. For everyone, we all miss things sometimes. There's a term for people who are woke for too long. It's called insomniac. Perhaps there's something to the fact that insomnia is also commonly associated with depression and mental illness. So, in closing... The solution is not to try and change other persons, uh, other people rather, by improving their awareness, but to be aware of our common humanity, both faults and virtues, and let that guide our interactions. Number one, life is unpredictable. Number two, life includes suffering. Number three, you will suffer. Number four, you're stronger than you think. What I like most about this list is that there's no doing specifically prescribed, but I'm confident that taking on this understanding will guide our course of action in ways that are more likely to be truly helpful. And just to be especially clear, I think this is also true for how we approach physical health conditions, not just mental health. And so now I'm eager to get your feedback. Do you think that this episode provides a meaningful contribution to the discussion around the challenges we all face in general or mental health struggles in particular? Either way, let me know. You can comment uh, on the Facebook page or you can email me at theandrewcurtisshow at gmail.com. Better yet, you could share this with somebody else. The best way to keep these episodes coming out is to let me know that you want to hear them and to let me know what's come from your conversations spurred by what I've talked about today. As always, though, thank you very much for listening and we'll be talking to you again soon. 